Welcome to Traverse, a Huckberry podcast where we explore the stories of people who have committed themselves to live an unconventional life. I'm Chris Burkhardt, an adventure photographer, and I'll be joined by my friend and ecologist, Charles Post. Each episode will bring on a guest and dig into what motivates them, how and why they've pursued a life of adventure, uncover actionable tips and inspiration, and a whole lot more. Because there's always a new adventure around the corner, and the world is still full of corners. Welcome to Traverse. Today's episode features Jocko Willink, author, beloved podcaster, and retired United States Navy officer who served in the Navy SEALs and former member of SEAL Team 3. Since leaving the SEALs in 2010, Jocko has written over 10 books, including Extreme Ownership and The Way of the Warrior Kid. He started the Jocko podcast, which discusses everything from war to business to everyday life. He founded the management consultant firm Echelon Front, along with a myriad of other companies. It's safe to say he is one of the most motivated and unique individuals on the planet, which makes him the perfect first guest for the Traverse podcast. Chris. My man. Dude, those photos you got of the volcanic eruption in Iceland are unreal. <laughs> did, you, did you throw anything in? I, I was so curious. Did you throw anything into the lava? Is that like bad best practices? Like to um, It's definitely kind of funny because it's a little like anti-leave no trace. Um, I'm not going to lie. I tossed in some stuff. I watched some rocks just <laughs> explode into flames. It was probably one of the most gratifying things in the world to simply just watch like things combust, right? It bring <laughs> out the inner pyrotechnic in me. And um, yeah, I mean, it's not something that I think everybody in the world should start throwing rocks into lava, but I mean, can you help yourself? Like it's the coolest <laughs> feeling in the world, you know? And so you're in Iceland. This is I you're am. spending your summer here and you're basically on a volcano tour. That's that's that was the calling. For some reason, the universe has aligned to allow me to be in Iceland for the second volcanic eruption of the Geldingadalur Valley, right? So this is the same area where the first eruption happened, um, just another, like kind of another valley next to it, all connected. What's crazy about it is unlike other eruptions, and this is just like the world according to Chris Burkhardt, I am no scientist. I didn't even go to high school, or sorry, I didn't even go to college. <laughs> I barely graduated high school. Um, but for all intents and purposes, I am a moron. Um, but as it was explained to me, most volcanoes have a chamber that fills up and then that chamber gets the high pressure, right? And it explodes, right? And so what happens is that chamber builds up and all the heavy stuff sits to the bottom. It's like a fizzy drink, right? So all this mm. heavy stuff. This uh, eruption is different because it has access to lava that's below the mantle of the earth, meaning 70 mm. kilometers down, there is an endless supply of lava, theoretically. And that's where this volcano is accessing. So it's terrifying because it could last for a very long time, if you know what I mean. But we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about our guest, Jocko, who, you know, you and I both agreed, like, there's probably nothing more scary in the world than Jocko. <laughs> <laughs> we asked him so many good questions, but the one that just, I couldn't get out of my mind was, are you afraid of anything? No. Yeah, I mean, and just, you just know, like, when he says it, he's being honest. I'm Charles Post. And I'm Chris Burkhard. Let's dive in.
Jocko, where are you at right now? Where's uh, where are we where are we catching you? You're catching me in San Diego, California. Two close friends of mine, two brothers, the Higginbotham brothers, they paddled from Alaska to Mexico. Oddly enough, not sure if it was just because of a favor or a favor of a friend or what, but you ended up um, doing the voiceover for that film. And it like basically like changed the whole dynamic of the film and was it was a huge thing for them. And did you feel some kind of connection to to them or that or that journey? Like what made you say yes, I guess? I'm trying to think of what the connection was. I, I don't have a lot of friends. And so whatever the friend of a friend connection was there, if one of my friends asked me to do something, then I'm going to do it. And, and yeah, I mean, it's cool. Those guys were doing something that was hardcore and I like, you know, hardcore stuff. It's funny though. I had to do it twice. You probably don't know that. Oh <laughs> the, God. The first one that I did, the first one that I did was a little bit too hard, a little bit too <laughs> hardcore. And so they were like, uh, and I, the, the thing is though, is I hadn't seen it. I didn't, they yeah. just sent me the script. And yeah, so yeah. I read it like, the water was a mere 38 degrees the time the paddle out was now. And I read it like that kind of mode. And they were, then they sent me the, they said, Hey, you know, a little lighter. You look at the film yeah. and you know, maybe yeah. take, they're not going to war. I was like, all right, yeah. cool, I got it. And then I chilled out a little bit and did it again. Yeah. So. And the film was called by hand for those who uh, haven't seen it. it. It won some awards, did really good, but yeah, those, those guys, I mean, Dude, it's, it, it won it's awards. Hardcore. That's awesome. I didn't know anything yeah. about that because I just did it. And then I never really heard about it again. Yeah. I just did the festival circuit and, you know, one, but it was, I mean, obviously like as terms of a documentary, like something that had never been done. I mean, their, their trip still blows my mind. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in the ocean, but the areas they were paddling just are so scary. I mean, it's, it's heavy, man. So very heavy. cool. I feel like yeah. you should follow up. You might have like an award with your name on it, just sitting in a box somewhere. <laughs> I mean, yeah. best, best voiceover of all time. Yeah. That's yeah. a thing. I think people get awards yeah. for voiceovers or the award is like voiceover. That's a little bit too intense for a documentary film. <laughs> yeah. It was going to be PG made it PG 13. Yeah. VO's oh no, no, no. It's, it's, yeah, it's R they had to, they had to get a warning label before they showed it. <laughs> no way. Did you pick up on surfing when you were, when just like, when you were doing your training or was this just something you've always wanted to do? Did you do it in New England? I started surfing in Maine as a kid and I was very lucky. There was a, a really, a, a, a true waterman who was a lifeguard in Kennebunk, Maine, and his name is Mark Seeley. And when I was 10 years old, he just, I lived in like the, an attic apartment in this building. And he came up and said, hey, I'm going to teach you how to surf. And so he <laughs> gave me a surfboard. It was a Robert August Swallowtail. And he took me out surfing. And so then once I learned to surf, it really narrowed down what I wanted to do because I wanted to be, you know, in the military. I wanted to be some kind of commando. And I realized that if I was in the SEAL teams, I could get stationed in either San Diego or Virginia Beach, which I was ready to, to go to either one of those places. And so, yeah, when I joined the military, I, I joined the SEAL team so that I could get stationed in a cool place and, and, and to be able to work in the water, because obviously I liked working in the water, you know, growing up surfing. So was surfing something you could do while you're on active duty? Is that even like an option? Oh yeah. It's <laughs> not just an option. I mean, it's, it's a, you are stationed on the beach. I mean, you have your boards at work and if the waves are good, you go. 
And you're also accessing some of the sickest beach breaks and point breaks in California. I mean, DMJs and all that stuff down in lower San Diego, like it's exceptional. And, you know, normal people like myself, we would always try to like, you know, rub shoulders with anybody we could to get in there, (laughs) which is wild. So, I mean, yeah, you got access to killer spots. Speaking of, of surfing, you feel like you came into SEALs with with kind of that advantage, being comfortable in the water. Obviously, it's a lot different training, but just that comfort level being tossed around in the surf and being, you know, having to kind of because the ocean's so much about letting go. You're in the shore break zone. You're not like fighting through it. You're just having to relax. And it was that did that like translate to like, I don't know, I guess giving you some kind of leg up in some capacity. Surfing is 100% a leg up going through SEAL training. It is probably one of the best backgrounds you can have is to be a surfer because you have that comfort level in the water, you're used to the cold, and I think it might be the biggest leg up that you can have. Wrestlers can do really well, but wrestlers can also, if you're not comfortable in the water, you're never gonna make it. So, yeah. The, and one of the best ways to get comfortable in the water, water polo players as well, but they they can do well. Swimmers can do well, but surfers, yeah, it's cold. You get that you get that cold aspect as well as a surfer. Yeah. What were you like as a kid? What was what was 15-year-old Jocko like? I mean, I'd love to I'd love to imagine. Yeah, I'm very very lucky that I went into the SEAL teams because I was I was a very rebellious kid. I had a lot of energy and a lot of aggression and it wasn't being placed in a healthy place when when I was a kid. And so when I joined the military, it was like an incredible blessing because now all of a sudden, all this energy and aggression that I had as a young man, I got told, you know, okay, this is what you, this is what you're going to do. This is what you do. This is what you do with all this energy. You work hard, you exercise, you train, you prepare and that's where all my focus went. And so I got very lucky that I joined the military because otherwise, you know, it's like you got this bundle of energy that's getting ready to explode and it needs something, you need to release that that somehow. And when I was growing up, you know, I'd release it in the mosh pit or I'd release it in fights or, you know, whatever. You know, we had hardcore bands when I was a kid and we were just, we were just, you know, raging children. And luckily I, I joined the military and was able to place that extra energy and rage into a positive thing. Jocko, what I was going to say is how did you know the SEALs? Like you joined this, you joined the service. Did you just have this idea that the SEALs existed and you want, you needed to be there? Or was there some sort of a journey that kind of got you to that, that realization? I'm, I, like I said, I, I always wanted to be in the military. I always wanted to do some kind of special operations. When I was a little kid, I collected these little soldiers, these little uh, little toy soldiers. And my favorite of all those toy soldiers was the the British commandos. And I had these little British commandos, and they had like little Zodiac boats, and they had kayaks, and they had you know uh, uh, you know skull cap hats. And I was like, okay, these this is what I want to do, and. I figured out at some point that the American version of that was the SEAL teams. If you wanted to be in a little boat, you wanted to come across the beach and work in the ocean and go do commando stuff from the ocean, that was the SEAL teams. And when I figured that out, that's kind of that's kind of how that ended up ended up happening. Was there a point where you thought about quitting at all? Was there any was there any significant moment where you're like, oh, this is like the bottom, the the very bottom of everything? 
No, not at all. I, I never thought about quitting for one second. I never, <laughs> it was, yeah. I, I mean, I was young and I, that's what I wanted to do. And they would have had to kill me. I just didn't care about anything else. And I had fun, you know? And I, look, I've, I've talked to some of my buddies that, that said it sounded like I made it sound like it was easy and it wasn't easy. And, you know, doing a four mile time run on the beach, you got to make that time. And that was not easy for me. I had to run as, as hard as I could doing a two mile ocean swim. That's not easy for me. It was hard for me. I had to work really hard. I had to put out obstacle course, the regular physical training, like all that stuff was not easy for me, but it, but I, but it was fun. I, I hear some people say everyone thinks about quitting. I never thought about quitting. And I know a bunch of other guys ne that never thought about quitting. And so, yeah, I wasn't going to quit. <laughs> but so that mindset, like the not quitting mindset, where did that come from? That's something you just, you just had or? I, I wanted to be a SEAL. So <laughs> how, how is the Navy SEAL Jocko different from the Jocko today? No different. No different. Uh, oh, no, there is a different. Now other pe people know that I'm doing what I'm doing, but I'm still doing the same <laughs> stuff that I've, I've been doing for for 30 years. You know, I still wake up. I still work out. That's what I've been doing. I was doing that when I was in the SEAL teams. I showed up to work early, you know, like this is this is just me. And, and that's what's cool. You know, the guys that I was in the teams with, they know exactly that they know who I am. They know I've been like this forever. There's no... Uh, there's no facade I'm putting up. Uh, it's just me, and and so there's nothing's really, you know, nothing's really changed about me. Uh, I, I guess people might, you know, people might know who I am a little bit more. Obviously, no one knew who I was when I was in the SEAL teams, outside the guys in the SEAL teams. So that's that's it. I'm still the same dude. You you obviously were you a, a good student prior to going into SEALs? Like were you were you good at school at all? I mean, I just don't. I I personally can't understand how you've taken this upbringing and then SEALs, and then all of a sudden like this business experience and marketing experience that you've basically created all of these different um, avenues for success. Like, what where did that come from? Where did that that sense of business come from? So no, I wasn't a good student in high school. Uh, you know, I bear, I don't, I barely did any homework. I don't think I'd read any books. I, <laughs> I, I definitely didn't bring books home. Like you, I, uh, like I wouldn't bring books home from school and it's a lot different now. Uh, you know, my kids were doing, you know, three, four, five hours of homework every day. I didn't do homework and it's just a different time. I think there was less homework at the time anyways. Maybe that's just my bias, but <laughs> Uh, no, it wasn't until I joined the military. And and then, you know, when I went to college, I, I got sent to college by the military and I had been in for 10 years at this point, or I guess, yeah, 10 years. I'd been in for 10 years. I mean, I sat in the front row of every co college class I had. I got, I would literally get all hundreds on my tests and mm. I just would study and I would be prepared. So that's what you know, that came from being in the military and understanding how to apply myself and focus on things and wanting to win, you know, a lot of times, you know, when I went to college, I already was in the military. I didn't need to get good grades, but for me, it was just a competition against the teacher. You know, I wanted yeah. to beat the teacher. I wanted to <laughs> give them nothing that they could, that they could say anything about me other than you actually answered every single question right on this test. It was, I had, I've had fun with it. So, so do you have some like tips and tricks for 
absorbing information. Cause I think there's, we're bombarded with information, right? And there's, there's people who are experts who know a little bit about everything, but I mm. think that we're losing yeah. that time when people are true deep experts, like somebody who spends, I mean, I spent 10 years of my life studying birds, which may be super weird, but that was like my passion and that's what I did. And it's, it's weird. It's super, weird. you know, yeah. But I think there's something to be said for you've obviously been able to like open books and retain the information to the point where the teacher cannot call you out. Like what, what were the skills? I, I'm probably a good test taker and probably good at memorization. Not great at it, but, but good at it. And so I would read the book. I would take, I would highlight, I would take notes and I would turn those notes into flashcards. And then I would run through those flashcards. I mean, I, I, there's a book called Tom Jones. I got it here in my library. In the first paragraph, it says, this is a book about human nature. And, or the, the theme of this book is human nature. And we had a quiz on the first, on the first section of reading. And there was, you know, seven questions about the characters and who they were and what happened to them in these first chapter or whatever. But the first question was, what is the theme of this book? And I missed it. And, you know, I went to the professor after I was like, how was like, what is the answer to this question? She said, oh, it's in the first paragraph. And I missed it. And I was really bummed out uh, because I just, I just, I guess I just read it too quick, but I would get, you know, in that semester with that professor, that's probably the only question that I actually missed. I was such a nerd, man. Uh, my, my trick is I would read. I did all the reading that I was assigned. I would highlight the important things, the things I thought I was important that were important, and then I'd make flashcards out of those things that I had highlighted, and I'd study them, and that's what I did. I I, I probably worked. Not there's no trick, man. The trick is that I I was I worked hard. Yeah, that that was the that. trick. I love what you're saying. I love just the, the the purity of working hard and what that what that does. But do you feel as a as obviously a very observant person as a parent too? Like, what do you think? like the youth of today. Um, and obviously you can tell I'm a dad. I'm, I'm always thinking about that. I got eight and a 10 year old. It's all I'm ever worried about. What do you think their greatest struggles are? I mean, besides like, you know, all the chaos of <laughs> the United States and everything out there, but like just in, in general, like, do you think it is like, it is, is it the phone? Is it like attention? Is it just like the lack of silence? Is it, you know, because I think you've come full circle. You you had that upbringing, full like kind of Dogtown Z Boys style, like punk rock era. Like expressed yourself, and then all of a sudden it was like whoo, everything got sucked in to this like really focus, which is which is amazing. But and now you're on the other side of it, and I'd love to know like what what do you think that they're facing right now? Like biggest biggest challenge. <laughs> you know, so you got two boys. Um, yeah. People will talk to me about like young men and how they're how they are now and what they're like and they're soft and they're whatever. I, I, I just look at my son and his friends and I'm like, okay, I, I'm not seeing that over on my side. So I think get your kids in the water, get them surfing, get them doing jujitsu and wrestling, uh, you know, get them outside, get them lifting weights. I, I, you know, I think they're going to be just fine. I, mm. I, I, and you know, I meet young, the young guys coming in the SEAL teams, same thing. They're studs. They're, they're beasts. Uh, I'm not worried about it. Yeah. And you can turn anything into a problem. I mean, the fact that the big, you know, tech companies are out there making these programs that are completely addictive, whether it's video games or social media, you, people have to recognize that those things are addictive and that they're set up to, to capture your brain. And 
and get your dopamine addiction going. And if you don't recognize that, it's going to be a problem. But if you recognize that and you can yeah. say, oh, dang, <laughs> you know, in my family right now, we got this little thing going where if you're looking at your phone, the rest of the family is going dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's really, really funny because everyone's right. We do it. We all we all are harassing each other. If someone's looking at their phone, the other the rest of the family is going dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. And it's true. So you go, yeah, you're all right. You put your phone down. So yeah, put your phone down. Don't get it. Don't, don't watch out for the free dopamine, right? The free dopamine comes from, from junk food. The free dopamine comes from your, your Instagram and social media and all that. So just get away from the free dopamine, earn your dopamine with burpees and good waves. Exactly. I love it. We'll be back with more of our conversation after a short break. Did fatherhood come naturally to you? Was that something that like was kind of uh, ingrained in you from a young age, or because um, I because for me personally, you know, I, I grew up. I didn't grow up with a dad. I, I was terrified when I had kids. I was like, dude, what? <laughs> what now? What do you do now? Like, you know, just never had that that nurturing thing. It was just me and my mom. And um, I feel in some way like I wrote a I wrote a children's book a couple of years ago. It was a really cool experience. It taught me a lot. But it was almost like a way for me to kind of like deal with some of that, trying to like articulate and materialize that the lessons maybe I hadn't learned and put it into something. Um, so I guess, yeah, I just I want to know a little bit more about that book and and um, and just kind of maybe that process. Like, what was that like for you to create? You know, it's weird for me because I just have like almost full books in my head. They're just all in there. They're like ready to come out. <laughs> and for me, writing is more is more like just manual labor. It's just mm-hmm. I have to type the words that are in my head into a computer. That's what writing is for me. There's no, I don't, have, I don't, I'm not really thinking about anything. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not exploring any, you know, patterns in my brain. I'm just the stories are in my head, almost fully formed, all of them, and I've got many of them in there. And so I just kind of write, uh, and, and, you know, I wrote the, I wrote the books cause as I was raising my kids, there was, there wasn't any books that I actually liked to read to them or to give yeah. to them, uh, because they just didn't have, seem to have like the values that I sort of wanted my kids to have. And so mm-hmm. I just wrote my own. Yeah. And it seems in some way like they, the, the books that are out there, they don't deal with like real practical application. You're like, mm-hmm. dude, you're, you're kids dealing with a bully at school or your kids dealing with this. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah, you can read about this like, you know, pageantry of like elves that goes to wherever. But like, <laughs> where's the story of the real like thing where like they get the insight in how you could deal with this? And yeah, you can make up fantastical characters. But at the end of the day, like this boy, this gal needs to like stand up for themselves or make a choice or ask for help or be brave. And, and that's really hard to find. I I totally agree with you. It's really a struggle as a parent. Yeah. And and even as I was writing the, the first way, the warrior kid of the series, even the first one, I I was, I was kind of, I was kind of 
like, oh, no one thought of this. I can't believe no one thought of this. It seems so obvious. And I knew it was going to do great because no one thought of this idea. And yeah. and e even when I wrote Mikey and the Dragons, the same thing. I was like, I can't believe no one's written this. This is so obvious. And I mean, I guess they are kind of archetypical characters. So maybe I just did. Well, I mean, I guess obviously I just took sort of archetypical characters and put them into stories. But they seemed real obvious to me at the time. And and yeah, yeah I, I, and I was I was super stoked on all those when I would share them with my friends, like the first people I would share them with, and you could see that they're like, oh, this is just so too good, and I would be super stoked. So, but but so the the a lot of the pillars of those books, right? Like, do those come? Are they informed by your your time in the service? Right? Like, there's got to be some in, yeah. inspiration or influence there. Like, how do you lean on this you know extensive background in the service? to make a children's book just it's the principles that help me help me as a human being and i just put them into kids language and and again is there any yeah if you work hard <laughs> your things are going to turn out better for you uh if you know how to defend yourself you probably won't have to mm -hmm. if you want to be smart you have to study if you want to do well in school you have to you have to do the work if you want money you have to get a job or create a business like all these things are so obvious yeah but you know that the, the all these are based on real things like it was my oldest daughter that came home one day when she was i forget what age it was but she came home and said i'm stupid mm. and i said what do you mean i'm what do you mean you're stupid she says everyone else knows their timetables i don't know them and i said how much have you studied and she looked at me she didn't even know what studying was she thought she should just know her times tables and so that's you know, I, so I sat her down and said, okay, we're going to make flashcards. And I taught her how to make flashcards. And then she knew her times tables in an hour. And then my, the other story or one of the other stories in there about swimming and being afraid of the water, mm. that was actually based on my middle daughter who wanted to be in the school play, but she was scared to sing in front of people. And so no. I said, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. You're going to sit in your room by yourself and I'm going to shut the door and you sing. Mm. And then the next day I said, okay, now I'm going to open the door and you're going to sing. And then the next day I said, I'm going to stand in the hallway and you're going to sing with the door open. And the next day I said, you're going to stand in the hall. I'm going to stand in your doorway and you're going to sing. And I didn't know it, but that's a real, that's a real form of therapy. And the th form of therapy is called exposure therapy. And th that's what you do when someone's scared of something, you don't overexpose them to it because then they'll be yeah. horrified. What you do is you show them a little bit of it at a time, and eventually they figure out that oh, this is a, this is this is okay. This is this is I, I, there's nothing to be afraid of. I love it. I mean, it's it's so cool too that you didn't just take you know obviously like extreme ownership is such a powerful book. I feel like it really applies to people who are maybe within mine and Charles' age, you know, younger. But you didn't just take principles from that and like directly apply it. it it's cool to see them come from like real life experience, from being a dad, from from you know, questions that come up. Sometimes I think it's that similar thought. You're like, how do I address this? You know, and then mm -hmm. you're, you're sitting there toiling over it. And that's really rad that it kind of comes from like that, you know, ingrained, real, raw experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The whole, th the, all, all those books are based on stuff I actually did with my, with my own kids. So it's pretty cool. And I have to imagine the, the children's books probably are well read by adults. I mean, there's so much to to dig out yeah, of this. Yeah. Is that something it, you experienced? For sure. Not <laughs> only that, I mean, I get so many letters from kids and, and then I get letters from parents as well and, and emails and messages. One of the coolest things that happened was I got this letter and 
I actually ended up reading it on my podcast because it was this letter about this guy. He was, you know, 37 years old and he was out of shape and overweight and he was drinking every night and he was doing poorly at his job and his relationship with it wasn't good. And, and he said, he goes, and then I read your book. And then he said, you know, I started small. I started just waking up every morning going for a walk. And then I, I stopped drinking beer, you know, every night. And then I started working harder at my job and started paying attention to what I was doing. And it's been whatever it was. He's like, it's been, then I, then I, then I stopped drinking completely. And then I stopped eating sugar. And eventually now it's been, you know, 11 months and I've lost 37 pounds and I got a promotion at work and, you know, my relationship is great. And then he says, and the book that I read was Way of the Warrior Kid. And I was (laughs) kind of stoked on that one. Yeah, That's awesome, man. Yeah, very cool. I was just going to say, I mean, I, I feel like there's so many layers to you, like children's book author, like you've done the military thing and I mean, the, the, you read your Wikipedia page and it's stacked. Does anything scare you? Yeah. I mean, not, not really. I'm not really scared of, of much and there's a lot to be scared of in this world right now. Um, but yeah, there's nothing that really scares me in that I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, maybe if you gave me a couple days, I could come up with something. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, when you have kids, you know, I, th- I would say one of the scariest things, if you have kids, there's things that can happen to your kids that is very hard to control. And, and I've seen, you know, kids have horrible things happen to them. I mean, everything from you know, drug addiction to overdosing and, you know, whatever other problems kids can get into. And I, I've been very lucky. My kids are fantastic. But that I would say when they were younger, they're all kind they're all older now. You know, my kids aren't really kids anymore, to be honest with you. Uh, but, you know, when they were younger, I would pay attention. I wasn't really scared of it, but I don't know. You got to be careful. The world's the, the world can be a scary place if you're if you're not careful. I guess. Where where do you draw strength from? I know for me, I have to. I mean, if I'm going to give to other people, or I'm going to you know be on a project and be managing all this stuff, and I've got to like you know give give give. I kind of have to have my well full. Like I have to fill myself up. Time at home, time with the family, blah blah, blah doing whatever it is. I just love to like how, like where do you draw strength from? Like how you know? I think that there's a lot asked of you, right? Your time, everything, business, ventures, speaking, yada, yada, yada. So how, uh, how do you draw strength for that stuff? You know, cause I mean, even, even the best of us can get at times just like, you know, we feel like we're just depleted, right? Giving so much of ourselves. I don't know. I'm, I've not really thought too much about that. I mean, I get up and I go, I don't know. I, I'm going to go and do what I'm going to do. And I don't really think too much about where it comes from or, or anything like that. I'm just, it's, it's, uh, rewarding to be able to try and help people out as much as possible. And so I guess that's what I do. But I think, I think that's it though. Like, I mean, it seems like you're making, you're making these books, you know, again, you have, it's consulting, you're, you're doing a podcast. All this is to ultimately kind of help other people. Right. I mean, that's, and so I'm guessing that that's a part of what fuels you, what gets you going. Right. I mean, I know you get up, you know, pre five o'clock, early as hell, workout, blah, blah. But like a party you knows and a very big party that, that people are looking at that, they're taking ownership for their day because they see that and they're like, holy shit, like somebody's 
somebody's calling me out. I've got to do it too. And I mean, that feels good, right? Like, I mean, that's, that's a part of that experience. I mean, I know you're, you're, if nobody was seeing it, you'd still be doing it, but that's gotta like, in some way make you feel, okay, I'm going to do one more rep. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to push this one more time because like somebody, somebody's doing it too. It's kind of, I don't know. Well, yeah. Like the podcast definitely feels like that because a, a lot of people will 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 touch base with me about the podcast and how much it helps them and and all that so the podcast and then the, and the podcast is a high demand signal on me right because it's something that needs to be done every week so it's not like a book i mean someone tells me they you know they learned a lot from leadership strategy and tactics i'm like hey awesome it's i'm glad you read it but i don't have to work on it today yeah. but the podcast it's like i owe another one you know as soon yeah. as i get done with one i owe another one so uh, yeah, knowing that, knowing that people are out there and that it's helping them out is definitely, uh, definitely keeps me, keeps me working on them. What does like, uh, uh, the day to day look for you right now, besides obviously getting up early, working out. And then like, it, does it, is it like, you know, you, you hear some of these people's schedules like, yeah, like from four to five, I'm doing this. And then from five to 10, I'm like, I'm hanging out with my kids. And then, you know, is it, does it vary? I mean, because as Charles mentioned, you know, you, your time probably just people are pouncing on you for for stuff and some things you you know you, you're committed to obviously you're not afraid of consistency that's probably one of your strengths um but what does that look like what does the day-to-day look like for you every day is different you know every day is different other than the fact that i get up early and work out after that who knows i might be working with a client i might be traveling to work with a client i might be going to i, I might be checking formulas for new supplements i might be you know get looking at the new design for a new pair of you know hunting pants Uh, it just stuff changes all the time every day is a little bit different and are you are your new ventures always based around purely your interests or is it more like hey i was in this space you know i was i was you know i was using x y and z and it, it sucked and so now i'm here to make something better i've always i've always loved this idea that when we bring a product into the world we're either solving a problem or answering a question like we're, we're doing we're creating something because it needs to be created not just because oh god i can turn a buck and i can you know so i'd love to know like what, what's your approach there you know obviously started a multitude of business ventures and within health and wellness but then also this latest thing hunting made in the usa um so yeah what what's the process look like for you yeah it is 100 percent based on on things that i want things that i need (laughs) things that i want the way i want them that's that's why i start stuff because if if there was something that already existed that was the way i thought it should be that's what i would use you know um if it doesn't exist then i'm gonna figure out how to make it (laughs) <laughs> is that fun for you? That process exciting and fun, like to uh, to kind of put something into the market. Is it is it kind of pain in the ass, or is it like, or is it something where you're like, oh, I, like you you kind of get stoked on that, you know? Uh, both. It's a pain in the ass, but it's also <laughs> it's also awesome, you know. Um, right now at at Origin USA, we have five factories. We've got hundreds of people that are working in America. We and our whole supply chain is American workers making things. Uh, so, is that hard to do? Yeah, there's yeah. a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Is it worth it when you see, you know, when I get to put on a garment or I see someone wearing a pair of jeans or wearing a pair of boots that I know is 100% made in America by American hands? That's awesome. 
supplements. Like when I see someone drinking one of my energy drinks and I know that they've got something that's literally good for them instead of something that's literally horrible for them, <laughs> that, that feels great. So yeah, the, the process is hard. Of course. I mean, everything's hard. The time investment, the capital investment, the, 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 the management of the, the, the logistics of all these things is yeah. crazy. It's crazy. Uh, and the barrier, like the barrier to entry on some of this stuff is the barrier of entry, the way we're doing it is very high. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas there's an easy way to do this stuff too, which is not the right way to do it. Um, right. You know, like right. when, when I started my energy drink, I didn't want any chemicals in my energy drink. The only way to do that and make it sustainable on the shelf was to pasteurize it. Mm. which means it's like a heating process that you kill all the germs that are in there. No one was doing this. We had to wait an extra, you know, just over six months to prepare to be able to do an energy drink this way. The easiest thing would have been like, oh, everyone else uses chemicals. Cool, we'll use chemicals too and slap my yeah. name on it and be good, you know? Yeah. Uh, same with like, we sweeten it with monk fruit. Why do we sweeten it with monk fruit? We could save, you know, four cents a can if we just use this other artificial sweetener that's... Yeah that everybody else uses, no, we're gonna do it the right way. You know, it's the same thing with, with making clothing. Uh, making clothing is a really hard thing to do. Making fabric, I mean, we have looms, we weave fabric. It's, it's very Great. difficult things. It's, it's, it's craftsmanship that was almost lost in this country. And luckily my, my business partner, Pete, he, he got hold of some of the last people that knew how to do this stuff. And now we're passing on to the next generation. So that is, you can't pick a harder way to get that done, but you also can't pick a more right way to do that stuff. So yeah, yeah it is a pain in the ass, but <laughs> you know, things that are hard are things that are worthwhile and I'd right. rather do it the right way and, and have something that I can actually be proud of then do it the wrong way and have to hold my head in shame when I know that we're, you know, uh, reinforcing slave labor uh, yeah. in third world countries. You know, I think our, our world is, 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 um, some of the conversations are getting narrower and narrower. People are less willing to hear different opinions and to mm. accept yeah. and consider different points of views, different experiences, backgrounds. You've interviewed hundreds of people. You've, I'm sure, educated and taught, interacted with so many different types of people from the people in the service, working with Iraqi soldiers, teaching different SEALs, interviewing people on your podcast. How do you find common ground and what are some of the lessons and tactics or things that you've come away with having just exposed yourself to so many different types of thinking and living and being? Yeah. You really do have to, I, I think this sort of stemmed for me from a leadership perspective as a leader, my, the more and more experienced I got as a leader, the more I realized that the more open my mind was, the better a leader I was going to be. So if, you know, if someone comes to me and, and, and they've got, if Chris comes to me and he says, Hey, I think we should do this mission like this. I realized that me saying, well, no, I think we should do it this way is, is bad. And the best thing I could do is open my mind and listen to what Chris has to say, because Chris probably has a reason why he's saying this. And he's probably see, he probably sees something that I don't see. And so I'm just going to listen to what he has to say. And by the way, 
if I don't agree with it, initially, I'm going to say, well, he must understand something that I don't understand. How can I ask him some questions so that I better understand his perspective so that if his perspective is correct, we can go with his plan instead of my plan. So I think initially this sort of attitude that I have of trying to keep an open mind just came from as a leader having to interact with people. And then over time, I realized, you know, that if there's someone that has a viewpoint that I don't necessarily out of the gate agree with, I shouldn't pounce on them and think, oh, you, you just don't understand. No, instead I think there might be something I don't understand. And so then ask them earnest questions about what their viewpoint is and try and see their side of things and and understand that their perspective is going to be different than mine. And, and that's okay. Uh, so for me, that's kind of what it boils down to. I, I think I, I often say the most underrated and underutilized skill of leadership is listening. And, and this traditional sense that everyone thinks if you're in a leadership position, that means you're standing up and you're barking orders at everyone. Like, no, that's not true at all. The best leaders will listen to what everyone has to say. The best leaders, the second, the second tool of leadership is asking earnest questions. Mm. Like, hey, can you explain to me why you think that way? Or can you help explain this to me? Because I'm not sure I understand it. So that's what I do when I interact with other human beings is I try and understand their perspective, try and see where they're coming from. Definitely look for common ground. You know, unless someone is a ISIS member <laughs> or, a, you know, a Nazi, then there's going to be somewhere where I say, oh, I understand where you're coming from. You know, if someone's, you know, a Republican or a Democrat, there's going to be something that I go, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. You know, I, oh, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I want people to be able to earn a living. So do you. Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's yeah. start with that. So yeah. yeah, I just try and keep an open mind and, and listen to what people have to say and try and understand other people's perspectives. Dude, that, that that's it right there. That was, that was beautiful. <laughs> um, Sorry, we should I just, play I that twice. We'll I know, I know. Twice. Like, hey, everybody, we're gonna <laughs> slow this down. I mean, it really yeah. though, it's about it's about building bridges, not walls. I mean, we, you know, it's that's the mindset that I think the world needs more of. And if we're constantly shouting into the echo chamber, all we're gonna hear back is our own voice, right? So I just I love what you said about that. I mean, that's that truly is like the sign I think of of a great leader and um, just sage wisdom, man. That's amazing. And how right do on. you? How do you balance, this is my, my last question, I have to ask it, intuition with a reverence for process? Yeah. Well, they both, they both are part of the calculus, right? And, and there has to be, the, the, the answer to your question is in your question and that it is, has to be balanced. I, I, I can look at, you know, I can look at spreadsheets about a decision that we're going to make from a business perspective and the the numbers might say to do one thing but if i've got a gut instinct that's saying to do something else i can't ignore it and the same thing i can't have a gut instinct that this is what i think we should do and ignore the numbers i have to i have to take both those and put those both into the calculus to make a decision and then generally what i do is something that i call the iterative decision making process i don't make big giant decisions all at one time I make small decisions a little bit at a time and I pay attention to the feedback and I'm humble enough to realize that, hey, the decision that I made could very well be wrong and so I need to make adjustments. So I don't ever count out my intuition to my gut. I don't ever count out 
the data and the metrics that I see, I'm going to, I'm going to put those both in the calculus of my decision-making process and, and weigh them both appropriately. I'm also going to understand my own bias about things, you know, like some people, you might have a bias where you really look at the metrics. And if that's where you normally lean, you need to say to yourself, you know what? I always rely too much on the numbers. I need to keep that in check. So we kind of need to profile ourselves and understand our own psychological profile so that we can account for that in the calculus as well. Yeah. Takes deep, takes deep reflection to do that. It's hard, hard for a lot of us to, to look at where we potentially could be more reflective, more introspective, you know, and, and sometimes take a step backwards to take a step forwards. Yeah. Tough. Well, I recommend you go surfing to go try and figure some of that stuff out. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Jocko, thank you so much. I I mean, I, especially the last two questions, I feel like I just had a full, you know, a dissertation read to me about how to do life well. So I just, yeah. Cheers. And yeah, so much gratitude. Yeah. Right on. Means a lot, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, fellas. That conversation was awesome. Uh, you know, it's interesting to um, to chat with somebody who is so intense but has so much vulnerability. But he, he's so motivated, and it and it, it leaves me feeling. Mode. I mean, I left that conversation feeling stoked. I'm like, oh, I want to go. I want to go surf. I want to go. I want to go hit it. I want to go do 100 push-ups or something like that. And it, and it's funny because he kind of lives his life in that ownership mentality always. You know, like. He's he's holding himself accountable, but by holding himself accountable, he's holding us accountable, which is rad. Well, I think one of the themes is there's no point in cutting sh- in taking shortcuts, right? Like right. you listen to right. somebody with a different point of view because there's a benefit to it. You come out better, stronger, wiser, more well-rounded, more balanced. You wake up early because you have all these benefits. You know, you get to yeah be up before the world's busy. You get to be up before the sun, you know, mm. seize the day. And so I think there's a lot of things that come off as maybe simple, right? Mm. How to teach your kid to not be fearful of being on stage. But really he's just saying like, it's the process. Right. If you honor the process of of being strong, of waking up earlier, of being wise, successful, like you said, of course there's intuition, but there's just a process. And totally. if you want to get dopamine, do the work, do the burping, yeah. go, go surfing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's pretty rad. It's pretty rad. You know, when you asked him that question about like, do you fear anything? And he was like, <laughs> yeah. legitimately was like, no, I don't. I was like, you know what? He He's doesn't. Not lying. He's the first person who I've ever heard answer that question that I a hundred thousand percent believe. Really excited for, uh, the wisdom of Jocko to percolate into your brain and just, yeah, sit with, sit with it for a little bit, because I think we'll all come out the other side, better people. And with that being said, I think we should just, uh, get up and go. The Traverse is a Huckberry production in collaboration with Chris Burkhardt, Charles Post, and Duct Tape, then Beer. From Huckberry, Andy Forch, Richard Greiner, and Ben O'Mara are executive producers. Mike Idell and John Desabry are senior producers. Matt Marr, Benjamin Rawls, Aaron Para, and Willa Smith provided additional production help. From Duct Tape, then Beer, Becca Cahal and Fitz Cahal are executive producers. Evan Phillips is the senior producer. Music by Greg Jong and Graham Barton. Until next time, see you out there.